Today's reading of scripture comes from the book of Isaiah, chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. Amy's going to come up and read for us. Let's stand together for the reading of God's word. The word that Isaiah, the son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills, and all the nations shall flow to it. And many people shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations, and shall decide disputes for many peoples. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares, and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. One of the last words of the Bible is the Aramaic word Maranatha. And I'm sure some of you have heard of that word. It's more than just um, an old 1980s worship music group. It actually means, come Lord Jesus. And it's from Revelation 22.20. And I, I have found myself saying, not Maranatha, but the phrase, come Lord Jesus, often when times are very difficult. And perhaps you hear bad news or read the newspaper or we don't read newspapers anymore. We, you know, read uh, the, your favorite news website and you just see what's going on in our world and you just say, oh, come Lord Jesus. That's often how we use it today. It's when it's bleak and dreary and you just say, I can't wait for the Lord to come. But that phrase isn't just something you say in exasperation. It's meant to be a phrase of hope. It's not something that we think will happen. We believe it will happen. And today, in this part of the church's calendar year, where we mark the first Sunday of Advent, we mark the coming of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. The first coming was the first time that he came. And what we in the church believe is he came once, He will come again, and we happen to be living in this in-between period. Isaiah is speaking about that time, about our time, about a time where Jesus will come, where the Messiah will come, and the Messiah will come again, and from that day forward, there will be no more sufferings, no more war, no more trouble, no more strife. I think all of us really could look forward to a time like that. In chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, we get an overview of this story, the end of the story. And we don't have to wonder what's in store for us. We know what's in store for us. So it's not wishful hope that we're looking forward to. It's what Peter describes as living hope. It's real and it's coming. And so we're going to look at this text through two points. First, united nations in verses 1 through 3. And second, unending peace in verse four. First, United Nations. In 1950, there was a political scientist by the name of Ralph Bunchy. He was the first African-American political scientist ever to win a Nobel Peace Prize. And he was significant as one of the key players in the foundation of the UN, the United Nations. He wrote this about the UN. He said, the United Nations is our one great hope for a peaceful and free world. 
Do you know that since he wrote that quote, there have been literally hundreds of wars that have occurred on this planet since after the establishment of the United Nations. So one thing we know is that the United Nations as an institutional political body has not come close to fulfilling this one great hope for the free world. And the reality is that it will never fulfill that hope. Instead, we're given a very different picture in chapter two, verses one through four of what will fulfill this hope, this hope for a free world, a peaceful world. And so as we see again in verses one through three, Isaiah says, the word that Isaiah, the son of Amos saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem, it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted above the hills and all the nations shall flow to it and many peoples shall come, uh, sh- peoples shall come. I want to give a few observations of this passage. First, Isaiah says that it shall come to pass. It's not it might happen. It's this will happen. This is a certainty. It's a historical certainty that will take place. It's no dream. It's no fantasy. It's no wishful hope. There is this certainty of life. And regardless of all the different circumstances that we read about in the news, the point of what Isaiah is saying is that just disregard that. It's going to happen. I know you can read, for example, oh, there's a new variant. It's called Omicron. And that variant is going to bring us all back to the same place. It's going to evade uh, the vaccine and do all these things. You might read that and just your heart sinks and you feel, am I going to go back to that place again? Are we as a society and as a world going back to that? Well, this passage is meant for people like that person who looks at the news and just is discouraged or anxious or afraid or angry. And regardless of what you believe or why you believe what you believe, the point of what Isaiah is saying, what God is saying through Isaiah is don't lose hope that the rescue has come and it will come. The second observation from this text is that we're told that the mountain of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains. Now, the mountain of the house of the Lord refers very specifically to Mount Zion, which is in Jerusalem, the temple mount was built on a mountaintop. The house of the Lord is obviously the temple. So Mount Zion in Israel is rest there. And what Isaiah sees is that God says, this mountain is going to be the highest. One thing we know is that Mount Zion is not the tallest mountain in the world. We know that Mount Everest is. And there's many other mountains that are taller than that. So what is is God saying here? Why is he putting it like this? It's not about physical topographical elevation. So we need to step away from that. But there is a significance to a mountaintop. And for those of you who enjoy climbing mountains, um, I do. I like, admittedly, I haven't climbed too many really high mountains, but I've climbed some lower mountains. And one thing I always appreciate is you get to the top of a mountain after a long climb, you get to that top, to the summit, and you look out at the expanse and you always feel small because the vastness of all the other peaks and valleys that you see, and perhaps sometimes you're above the clouds as 
you might have experienced perhaps in places like Hawaii or in other parts of the world. And when you just see that, you see this vast expanse and you sense grandeur and awe and wonderment. And so the mountaintop is significant in that it's supposed to signify that when it comes to God. That is to say that when we climb to the top and see the, that perspective, we get a sense of our smallness and God's greatness. But one thing we, again, we do know Mount Zion is not this tallest mountain, but on all mountains, so often in human history, mountains have been used to worship all sorts of gods. In Nepal, in Tibet, there, you climb different mountains and you will see Buddhists and Buddhist monasteries where monks will worship uh, in, within Buddhism on these mountaintops. Oftentimes, monasteries are built there. And then you go to Olympus, Mount Olympus in Greece, and you'll see the, the pantheon of the Greek gods built on the mountaintop, all trying to signify that these gods are above all other gods. There's another mountain that's described in Genesis chapter 11. It's the mountain of human beings, humanity creating this mountain. It's called Babel. And the people of, of that world decide, hey, we want to be like God. We are God, actually. So they start building this ziggurat, this mountain. And I, I, I just uh, always am amazed. Whenever you go to places like Yosemite, Yellowstone, Glacier National Park, or even other parts of the world, and you see the grandeur of God's creation, and then you compare it to anything human-made, while parts of Rome and London and New York City and, and um, San Francisco, they might seem really wonderful, but relative to God's creation, it cannot compare. Well, you have really this, this attempt by humanity to create this big mountain to not worship God or to say God is above all, but rather to say we are above all. We're going to achieve this. And remember God's response? He says he scatters the people with different languages all to the ends of the earth. They are scattered. Here we see something quite different. We see rather than a scattering, a gathering. And we see a gathering on a mountain. This mountaintop is not necessarily about the physical mountain, but the spiritual mountain of who God is. God is the one who is to be worshipped on this mountain. And he is the mountain, in a sense. And so what's interesting to note, another observation about this mountain is that you see that this mountain has a flow to it, and it's flowing. People are flowing upward towards this mountain. Notice that this mountain flow of a river, because rivers flow, Rivers never flow up a mountain. They always flow down a mountain. Why is that? Gravity. So for a mountain river to flow upward, it would take a suspension of natural law. There is no way that can happen unless the miraculous happens. And it's exactly the reason why when you see what's happening here in verse 3, and you see that the nations and the peoples who were once scattered because of their rebellion against God and assumption that, well, we're our own gods. We don't need God at all. We can do everything by ourselves, and God scatters them in judgment. In the latter days, in the last days, God is going to regather all those people. 
He's going to turn them back so that they will not rebel against him, but they will lift their eyes towards him. And they will do what cannot be done, which is they will come together to God's presence. They will flow upward. It has to take a miracle for people to do that. There's no way on their own people can worship God. Not rightly, at least. You can go through the motions, but you will never worship God. Not truly. God has to do the work of upending what is naturally inclined in our hearts to revert all of us back to his presence and to want to worship him. He changes the flow of our hearts. Our natural instinctual flow is to turn away from God and he's going to do the work of bringing us back to him. Now, how does he do it? How does that miracle happen? It happens because it happens on Mount Zion. Now, what's so special about Mount Zion? It's not the tallest. It's not the most beautiful mountain in the world. But there is something that no mountain in the world has compared to Mount Zion. Mount Zion is the mountain of death and life. We see this all throughout the Bible. This one mountain in all the world has such significance. In Genesis chapter 22, Abraham was told to climb the mountain of Moriah. And he was to do that with his son, Isaac. And so they climbed this mountaintop. And then Isaac says, Dad, I know we're supposed to sacrifice. Where's the sacrifice? And Abraham says, with the sense of forlornness, God will provide the sacrifice. And you know what God does? You know, interestingly enough, God provides the sacrifice. He doesn't provide his son Isaac. Abraham thought Isaac was going to be the sacrifice, but what does God do? God provides a substitute. When God stays the hand of the angel and says, do not lay your hand on the boy Abraham. And then when Abraham comes to realize it was but a test, a reminder that God is the one who is faithful and just and worthy of trust, which Abraham was able to pass. And then God says, Abraham says, look, there's a ram caught in the thicket. Let's use that. And a substitute is brought. God provides the substitute. There's blood, there's death, and there's life. In 1 Chronicles 21, we're told of another instance where this mountain becomes special. David sins against the Lord. He counts all of his army. And you might think, what is the big deal about counting your army? I mean, it's just a census. Why, why does God care so much? Because here's the thing about God is that you cannot fake out God. Like what you do externally, and you think, well, if I give this much money, God should be happy with me. But if my heart is far from him, God doesn't care about the money. He cares about your heart. Well, what God saw in David's heart was the exact same heart at the Tower of Babel. It was, look what I've done. Look what I've built for myself. This is my kingdom. Be, be really careful, my dear friends, because I know this for myself, and I, I believe all of us struggle with this. Whatever we, God has given to us as a gift, for me, maybe it's ministry, the church, my family. It's so tempting to think, oh, look what I've built for myself. That heart is in deadly danger. And whenever you think, look at my job, look at my career, boast the boastful heart, and you don't even have to say it, it's just in your soul. 
And maybe it's secretly there, and it's all you, and it's, you're looking at your bank account, and you're just so enamored by it. Your eyes are wide open as you're looking at it, just the numbers going up and up and up. You, all your investments are going up or maybe going down, <laughs> right? Whichever direction, if you're just broken or utterly elated, God knows, wow, you're placing your hope in that. Well, David did that. He counted his men and saying, look what I've done. This is my army and I'm the king. And God said, I see your heart. You're a braggart. You're boasting. You think this is all you. I'll show you that you're, you're going to face a consequence to this. And the consequence was the worst consequence he would ever have, which was it would be to the people of Israel. And he was given three choices of what type of consequence. He picked the third one, which is a plague. Three days of a plague. We know how bad plagues can be. It, well, our plague is nothing compared to David's plague because it struck a person and they were killed in the moment. And thousands of people are dying. And David is crying out and saying, please, Lord, have mercy on me. They're like sheep. They just don't slaughter them. And, and God hears and stays the, the hand of the angel of death. And what David does is he, he buys a threshing floor on the top of a mountain, on the top of Moria, of, the, you know, of Aruna, who owns this threshing floor, and he buys it, and he sacrifices there, and God stays the hand of the angel of death. That substitution would take place at the exact same place where Abraham was to sacrifice Isaac. And then now, fast forward many centuries later, David's descendant, also would climb that same mountain that Isaac and Abraham climbed, that David would climb to sacrifice for his own sin, for the sake of the people of Israel. And now a descendant of David would climb that same mountain with a cross on his back. And he would go and sacrifice himself, not a ram, not some animal that's on the altar, but he would sacrifice himself for the sake of his people. This is Mount Zion. This is the, the mountain that is going to be higher than all other mountains. We're not talking about geographical height and elevation. We're talking about the thrust of an impact of what that mountain means for everyone in this world. Without this death, there would never be peace. And in this broken world where sin and Satan still reign, in order to stop death, there needed to be death so that there would be everlasting peace. And that's the point of verses three and four. Three and four says this, unending peace will occur when this happens and many peoples shall come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of, from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations and shall decide disputes for many peoples. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore." I think all of us, when, again, reading the news and just living in our world, all of us think, I can't wait for a day where there's no more war, no more weapons, no more need for self-defense classes, 
No military academies, no Pentagon, because there's, they're not learning war anymore. They're not studying war. There's no you know, Sun Tzu. There's, there's no need for that book. Uh, the, there are only two ways, though, that this type of peace lasts forever, according to this passage. First, we have to have the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. We have to go together and get this word of the Lord from Jerusalem. Again, go back to what Jerusalem signifies, what the house of the Lord on the mountaintop of God signifies. Clearly, it signifies who Jesus is, the work of Christ. He is the word. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. So when we're speaking about the word of the Lord, it's not just scripture. It's what scripture is meant to point to, which is Christ himself. And so we see that Jesus is in every way the fulfillment of the promises of God in all of what he has said. And Jesus would die on this mountaintop so that there would be reconciliation, so that there would be peace. Peace is not found in the Oval Office. Peace is, uh, I mean, I remember um, in the, it was in the 1990s, during the attempts to bring about peace in the Middle East, Bill Clinton, President Bill Clinton, he had met with Yasser Arafat and uh, Prime Minister Sharon and in Israel, and they tried so hard to bring about peace, and it talks broke down because they were fighting over the different little parts of it. I mean, to this day, there are all sorts of peace talks, and there's still no peace. See, it doesn't happen with politicians and with generals and with weapons. It will not last. There can be temporary peace, but not forever peace. And there's a reason why, because if Jesus wanted to, he said himself, when they were arresting Jesus, the Roman soldiers, and Peter raises his sword to fight for Jesus, what does Jesus say? Put down that sword. And he says, I can summon up legions of angels. One angel can destroy the whole world. Legions of angels, thousands and thousands of angels. They can destroy the universe. I can sum up with just a word, legions of angels, to destroy all the armies, the greatest armies of the world. So what Jesus is saying is getting rid of um, missiles and nuclear bombs and uh, all sorts of weaponry, that's easy for Jesus. He could do it with a sum of just a word. But you know what would be very difficult for Jesus to actually deal with is the fundamental cause of all these wars. And we see in James chapter four, verses one through four, what is the cause of wars? Listen to what James says. What causes quarrels? What causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You do ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? What is the problem, according to James? Is it military strategy? Is it mass weapons of destruction? According to James, the fundamental problem that causes wars is actually the human heart. It's 
what's in our souls. It's more powerful than Hitler and Stalin, more powerful than a nuclear armament. It is in every one of our bedrooms, every one of our living rooms, every one of our workplaces. It's in the church. It is far more contagious and pervasive than COVID will ever be. It's what leads not only to mob burglaries in Walnut Creek and Nordstrom's, it's what also leads to opioid overdoses in different homes all around the country. But it also is fundamentally what causes a husband to leave his wife and his children without even considering their well-being. Or maybe a teenager throws a fit at their parents because they took away their beloved idolatrous toy with a little apple insignia on the back of it. It's the worker who is gossiping and undermining his boss and doing all he can to ruthlessly make his way to the top. It's the same of the so-called Christian who calls his church attendance and says that should be good enough for God. I mean, there's so many instances. It's not the war and the weapons that lead to war. It's the heart. And the heart is in every single person. Jesus could easily abolish and wipe away weapons with not even a hint of problem for himself. But to deal with our souls, it would require his life. It would require his forsakenness. It would require him to bear our sins on a tree. Because for him, physical things, easy, but a snap. But to deal with what is spiritually deep in our souls, it would be utter anguish and forsakenness. He died so that he could bear the punishment of what is internally in our souls. And this is the word that comes from Jerusalem, that he died and bore our sins on a tree. And then he also credits us with righteousness. You're no longer, as Paul writes about in Galatians, you're not a slave, you're a son, you're a daughter, you're an heir, you're a child. You've been brought into his family. You're welcomed. You're never alone. You'll never be forsaken. He's going to forever care for you. There'll be eternal peace, delight, joy. All of that was the word that was given at Jerusalem on that cross, on that day. Until we really understand that, we'll never understand peace. Not really. And not reconciliation. Now, how does this happen? How does this peace occur? Paul tells us, how it happens in 2 Corinthians 5, 18 through 20. He says, all this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to one another. No, to himself. And gave us the ministry of reconciliation. So notice the, the direction. First, it reconciles us to himself. It's a vertical reconciliation. And then we get the ministry of reconciling ourselves to one another. It then becomes horizontal. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world, again, to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation to one another, again. So again, it's vertical, which leads to the horizontal. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. Our greatest conflict and rift is not between other people. It's between us and God. Until we really grapple with that, we will never experience peace. 
It will be conflict of our souls. When Christ has reconciled us to himself, only then can we really understand how to find peace with others. I've shared this before, but um, it's, it's worth mentioning again and emphasizing. When David committed adultery with Bathsheba and then kills Uriah, her husband, in the most bloodthirsty of ways in war, such treachery. It's not just a murder, but it's treacherous murder. It's a betrayal of trust. You're someone who has given his life to protect David, and David goes and turns around to kill Uriah so that he could have this affair with Bathsheba. That's terrible. That's the man after God's own heart. Now, Psalm 51 was written as a psalm to reflect with David's confession to God for all of his sin. Finally, after Nathan, he's confronted by Nathan and he owns it and then he confesses to God. And what does he say in that Psalm? He says, to you and you only have I sinned. I mean, think about that for a minute. He has done terrible things to two people, probably more, right? Because there are other people probably died in that battle. So to to, at least to Bathsheba and to Uriah, certainly. He's done terrible things, really, really bad things. But David's confession is first to God. Why? Because until he realizes that he has sinned against the Lord, he will never experience reconciliation with another person, not truly in his heart. And this is the point of 2 Corinthians 5, 18 through 20, and the point of Isaiah 2 is that our greatest problem is not against another person. It's against God himself. And until that is dealt with, we cannot experience true reconciliation with another person. We'll always feel distant. When a husband and wife is at odds with one another, know that self-centeredness is at the core of that relationship. And who amongst us who is a husband or a wife has not experienced some sort of conflict with a spouse? But at the core, there's always something that I have done. Even if on the secondary and tertiary levels, it's clearly my wife's fault. But at the core, there's still me. There's still my action of my self-centeredness. Not, maybe not towards, specifically towards my wife, but ultimately in my own heart. And God sees that. And that's why it's between me and God. And until I see I am a sinner, I will never know how to show grace and mercy or I will never be a person who asks for grace and mercy. Without true reconciliation with God, there cannot be lasting peace. There will never be racial reconciliation or ethnic reconciliation until I first see my problem is fundamentally with God. And this is why even in our society today, all the issues regarding race and ethnicity, it, it will always fall short if we don't first see it as a problem against God first. In this way, then, no matter how many discussions we have or books we write about this topic, it'll be no different than the UN trying to find peace, world peace. It never finds peace at all. But remember that the fundamental central problem is not the UN or what's happening culturally or society. The fundamental problem is me. And if until you get to the place where I am the problem, then I will never be a, used as an instrument of reconciliation, have the ministry of reconciliation. 
There's always hope of reconciliation if Jesus is at the center of my life and the situation is never hopeless. That's the good news. That is to say that no matter how distant and broken your marriage is right now, there can still be reconciliation if there's Christ at the center. If you, still, if you see, actually, and when I say Christ at the center, what I mean is you acknowledge that I need Jesus. Not my wife needs Jesus, my husband needs Jesus, my kids need Jesus, but I need him. When, I, when two people finally come to that place, even in the most horrific of circumstances, even with betrayal of trust, there can be reconciliation. Friends can be reconciled only until they first see that they are the cause of Jesus' death. And until they just plant themselves in that truth, they won't be reconciled because you always are flooded with, oh, but he did this to me. And you don't understand what this person said about me. And, and the more we start replaying all the thoughts, and by the way, there's also in that process, there's an accuser who's saying, oh yeah, he did do that. He's an instigator and he's an aggravator. So whatever you feel, he's going to multiply that by 100. And he doesn't want you to ever go back to, oh yeah, but you are a sinner too. See, that's what the enemy doesn't want, and that's what our sinful nature doesn't want, is to go back to me and say, I'm the cause. I'm at fault. I messed up. I need a savior. I need a rescuer. Because when two people who have conflict both are doing that, guess what happens? Reconciliation. Both of them come and say, I'd like to reconcile. I'd like, would you forgive me? And God does an amazing work there. And he can restore and renew to even a greater relationship than before. Know this is that, and I've shared this many times, but I believe it to be so true. In our world, you have all these relationships in your life, but there are numerous people of where maybe someone is dearly close to you and you give them a 100% relationship, let's say. And then there's another person, they, they've done maybe one or two things that you've, you're now distancing yourself from them a little bit. So now you're at 80% with them. And then this person is 60 and this person's 40, 20. And then there's the zero. The zero is I'm cutting you off. You know, you hurt me too much and there's no way we're ever going to be reconciled again. So you're out of here. When we're young, what happens is think of this part as everyone who's old. I don't know, whatever old means, right? And here's youth. So when you're young, you're building relationships. Everyone's looking for a friend. When you're old, slowly relationships are narrowing because what we're doing is we're saying, okay, these zero percenters, I'm cutting them all off. I'll give you a little bit more of the 20, a little bit more of the 40 and 60. But when we place our hope in the 100% person, I've given my 100% to this person. They're my dear friend. I love them until they do one thing wrong. And suddenly they shift from 100 to 80. And then nothing wrong, 80 to 60. And then slowly but surely, they get cut off. As we get older, this front door of people flooding into our lives gets less and less. Why? Because we're tired. I don't feel like meeting with all these people. And you know, when you're young, you always want to meet with people. I, want, I need friends. I want to you get yourself out there no matter what. But as you get older, just say, ah, I need friends, but I'm tired. <laughs> so you don't even go out there anymore. And now your circle of friendships go are narrowed to this point. And as you get older, you're cutting more and more people off. The 80 percenters are now 60 percent, 20 percent, and that's narrowing to the point where 
you take your last breaths and at your funeral, there's two people. You know, and that's tragic. That's tragic. That's not what we see here in Isaiah. Peace, restoration. And in Second Corinthians, reconciliation, restoration, renewal of people, of relationship, of life together. Jesus paid a price so that we would be reconciled to the Father. And once that happens, it should be, let me go and reconcile with these people, with my husband, my wife, my children, my sibling, my friend, my church member. Our greatest conflict is always with God first, not with other people. And if there's anyone in your life that there's brokenness with, the Lord is asking you, do you know what I've given for you to be reconciled to me? How can you then hold this against this person? Do you remember what I've done? How much I've given? I've paid a terrible price so that you will forever be reconciled to me and live at peace. Then how can you say, no, Lord, not that person. They're just, you don't know what they've done to me. My friends, you don't know what you've done to the Lord then, if you're saying that. Who do you need to reconcile with today? Is it a parent, a friend, an in-law, a roommate, a sibling, a coworker, a church member? But you're saying it's too hard. It's too hard. But say that as you look at the cross and say, Lord, it's too hard. I can't do this. You don't know what they've done to me. And the Lord will say, I know, but I've loved you so much. If you only understood what you've done to me, I think you really will see that you can do this. He came to this world. We celebrate Advent because he's not a baby in a manger in a play because he emptied himself. He made himself nothing. He took on the form of a slave. He became obedient to death on a cross. He hung there so that you and I would have true peace with God and the hope of true and everlasting peace with even others around us. Do not let this day go by or this season go by. Make this season a season of hope for you. Say, I will not give up on people. I will not turn my back on people. I will reconcile, or I will make the effort to do so. And I'll never say this cannot happen. And I'll never say it will never be the same. No, it won't be. It will be better. It can be. It will be if you are in Christ. Let's pray together. Father, we acknowledge that we cannot do this on our own. It's just not within us. We don't have enough strength. Our minds have too many ill memories of hurts and pains and sorrows. But we're so thankful that Jesus, you bore that on the cross because you have ever, you, you know everything we've done and not just what we've done, but what we've believed, what we have experienced and what we felt deep in our souls. But yet you have decided 
that what was once as red as scarlet, our sins, are now as white as snow. So I pray, Father, that we would be able to submit and to surrender our hearts to you and to be so struck by just how kind you are, how merciful. When we see this great miracle in the beginning and at the end of your life, the miracle of the incarnation, it is miraculous that God became flesh and we, we couldn't spend thousands of years thinking enough about that truth, what that means. And so we, we acknowledge how wondrous that is. And then the miracle of the resurrection, death has been defeated. The brokenness of our world has been done away with. The darkest sins of our heart have been wiped away clean by the blood of Jesus. So we come to this table remembering that. We don't want to walk from this place without experiencing holiness and the awe and wonderment as we stand on the mountain of God and we kneel before the cross and we see the awesome beauty and splendor of that sight. More breathtaking than any mountaintop we were to climb in this world is standing on Golgotha with Jesus and recognizing how wondrous the gospel is. We thank you, Father. In Jesus' name we pray.